open your Bibles to Matthew 1. The name Jesus is the most often used name for the Messiah. It's actually the only earthly name that was ever used for him. All the other names that we use to signify or identify Jesus are titles. And Emmanuel is one of those titles. In fact, it's a very significant title. Paul had such regard to the name of Jesus, though, that he called it the name above all names in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. The name Jesus is Greek. It's a Greek name for a Hebrew name. The Hebrew name Joshua is what, how we would pronounce it. It would be pronounced in Hebrew, Yeshua which means Jehovah, our Savior, or it could mean Deliverer. Broken down, it forms two syllables, G and Thus, or Jah, for Jehovah, and Thus, which is the Hebrew name Hosea, which means the Deliverer, the one who saves. And so you put those together, the, these two names or these two syllables, put them together, and it comes to the very common name, of his time of Jesus. It carries this unique significance, though, that we know for Jesus of Nazareth, where Jesus, the Christ, becomes God in the flesh and dwells among us. And that's what we read in Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to ask if you would read with me, starting in verse 18, and we'll read up through verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. We're going to look at that passage tonight. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name. And so we have this title of Emmanuel, God with us, given to us here. In fact, in Scripture, there's only four times that the name Emmanuel appears. And just before I forget, uh, just to state this, Emmanuel with an I in the Old Testament is Hebrew. Emmanuel with an E is Greek. So same name, just written in different languages. Um, I have Emmanuel for everything, but we're going to see Emmanuel when we read Scripture. Four times 
only that this title is used. Once here in Matthew and three times in Isaiah. You can go ahead and start turning to Isaiah chapter 7. As we're going to look at this name, Emmanuel, God with us, it's not just God trying to encourage us. It's not God just trying to assure us that he won't ignore us or that he's far away and he won't forget us. This is a promise that he is with us. And it's interesting to me that as I was studying this, Matthew chapter 1 begins with a bookend telling us that God is come in the flesh. His name is Jesus. He is with us. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew to the very end, you get to Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And what is the last words of the New Testament, the Gospel of of Matthew that you read? Jesus turns to the disciples and said, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Amen. God is with us. That's the Gospel of Matthew. That's what he's communicating to us. And so we have here Emmanuel in Isaiah chapter number 7. There's a lot going on here. I know we've spent a lot of time lately studying through Isaiah. We're going to do it more. Uh, Isaiah 7, we're going to walk through this chapter a little bit as as we realize what God is really prophesying to us here in Isaiah chapter 7 when he gives Jesus Christ this title, God with us. Or first, I should rather, first proclaims this title to us that Jesus Christ has always had from the beginning. And so we have the Old Testament prophecy. Just read with me uh, Isaiah 7, verse 14. 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. If you jump over to chapter 8, verse 8, you read that again says he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of your of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then the the fourth time, third in the Old Testament that it appears is Isaiah 8 verse 10. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. And so we have this Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 7, but I want you to understand really what's going on in this prophecy. In fact, what's going on here in Isaiah 7 is far less significant than what occurs in Matthew chapter 1, and that's kind of the point. Here in Isaiah 7, uh, the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Israel has split into two. The northern kingdom is Israel. They have fallen under Assyria. uh, Assyria has come in, conquered the northern kingdom of uh, what is called Israel, and they're in control of them. And together they have come down to Judah, the southern kingdom, to try and capture the southern kingdom. And there the king is in great turmoil. He does not know what to do. And Isaiah comes with a prophecy from God to encourage him. It's meant to fill uh, fill Ahaz, King Ahaz, with, uh, with confidence, and it doesn't. And it doesn't because Ahaz, Ahaz ignores this prophecy. This is, there's a lot of little details. Boy, you could easily read, and I, I've done it. 
So I don't, I'm not going to condemn you without condemning myself, myself as well. I've read Isaiah many times, and I have to say I've read through this prophecy many times and just kind of passed through it. And I get to chapter 7, verse 14, I'm like, oh, there it is, Emmanuel. That's such a good verse. It's a great chapter. Would you start with me in, in Isaiah 7, verse 1? You'll understand why as we kind of walk through this. It's not overly complex, but there are some, uh, some difficult uh, names and difficult things going on. Verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, uh, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem, they ascend the mountains to Jerusalem, to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people was moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. In other words, he's shaking in his boots. He's scared. He's shaking because this news that invasion has come. He's up against a great army. There's chaos in, in both the northern kingdom and in Judah. And nobody is listening to God. Verse 3, then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrand for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia uh, have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in, the, in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Jump down to verse 10 now. Because Isaiah, under the direction of the Lord, now does something that's actually very unusual. Isaiah is instructed to give King Ahaz any sign that he wants that God is the one who's going to fight for Israel. In fact, look at the, the parameters of the sign that he could ask for. Verse 10, moreover, the Lord spoke... Again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. In other words, ask anything you want, and I will prove to you, King Ahaz, that I am with you, that I'm fighting for you, and that I will not let anything happen to you. Trust me. It's what he's saying. He's saying, Trust me, Ahaz. I want you to be victorious. I want Judah to stand. I want the whole world to know that I am the God of Judah. And notice Ahaz's reaction in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And so he refuses to ask for a sign. He refuses to trust Isaiah. Now here's what's interesting. As the northern kingdom has this unholy alliance with Assyria and they come down to attack Judah, they leave their own selves uh, 
uh, in great peril. You see, Israel at this point, or Judah, let me say Judah, is squished between Assyria up north and, and Egypt down south. And they're both converging on Judah. They both want the land of Israel. They both want this cross-section of the world where they can control trade, where they can dominate the world. And Israel, like we find it today, is kind of squished in the middle of all these kingdoms that are vying for its land. Not much has changed in that regard. And so Assyria has come down to conquer and Ahaz has an opportunity to put all of his trust in king, in the king, the Lord, Jehovah. And instead, what we find in the story is that King Ahaz goes down to Egypt and makes a pact with Egypt or sends messengers asking Egypt to come to his aid and save Judah from Assyria. And they can't. Only God could. And so he's rejected the Lord. And he's rejected this announcement of Isaiah that he made. In fact, back in verse 3, we read that the name Isaiah gave his, his sons, very bizarre names. Uh, like often happens with some of these prophets, God tells the prophet what to name his son. And he tells him here to name him Sheer Jashub, which means a remnant will return. A remnant will return. In other words, his son is a walking, living promise from God that God will not forsake Israel or Judah in this case forever. He will always have a remnant. He will always have a special people that, is, it, that he loves and he cares for and that he's going to nourish and bring along that he at any moment in time can set up as his kingdom. And so he names his son this promise that he is the, uh, an example of God's faithfulness to always have a remnant in Israel. And so God says, take your son with you. Take this walking testimony of my goodness and have him stand before King Ahaz and remind King Ahaz that no matter how perilous it becomes, no matter how great the Assyrian army comes as they advance down on Judah, God will always preserve the nation of Israel. And so he gives this prophecy. And Isaiah tries to encourage Ahaz. He tries to instill confidence in him. In fact, in verse 4, he tells him to be quiet, take heed, be quiet, do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. In other words, these two pieces of useless charcoal that will be extinguished, that will go out, that will waste away. Don't be afraid of Assyria and don't be afraid of the, the unholy kingdom of the north of Israel. Israel. Don't be afraid of them. And instead, Ahaz is very afraid. And so God says, I'll give you a sign. Ask anything you want, and I will prove that I am the Most High God, and I am with you. And Ahaz says, no. I don't need a sign. I don't want a sign. And he veils it in this failed or fake, this faux spirituality of, I'm not supposed to ask God for, for a sign. That would be to tempt God. 
and instead he makes that unholy pact with Egypt. And thus, the prophecy is unfulfilled. Which is why then God makes in verse 14 this statement. You don't want a sign? Fine, Ahaz, I won't give you a sign, but I will give the world a sign. Chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, the virgin, shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with so God gave a sign. And God, God's sign doesn't just mean deliverance for Israel, though. It means deliverance for the world. He gives a sign far greater than Ahaz could have thought of. He gives a sign that is timeless, that is complex, right? For the people of Israel to look at this and to hear of this sign, it does not make sense. It goes beyond natural reason and natural law, and yet it is not beyond the power of God. God will cause a virgin to conceive and bring forth a son, and he will save his people from their sins. He is God with man. And so we have the prophecy there. We have the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, that we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He is the ruler. He is the one who is in control. And so we arrive then back at Matthew chapter 1 where we have a New Testament completion of all of these prophecies. When Christ does come and he is born. In fact, we're even told in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 2 verse 12, and this will be a sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And so God sends his only begotten son into the world. To be Emmanuel. You know, in the Old Testament, there would be occasions where a, a man or a woman would find themselves standing on holy ground and God would be with them. Right? Happened multiple times to men and women throughout the Old Testament. But it was a, a one-time event a small snippet. God walked with these people and then God was gone from their presence. Not himself, but in literal embodiment. And then we come to the New Testament where everything changes. And Jesus, Emmanuel, will walk and talk and be with mankind. His presence in fact, let me be very careful and precise in the language that I use. From that point on, there was never a moment where God was not with mankind. For as Jesus was departing the earth, what was he doing? He was saying, I must leave that the Comforter may come. In fact, it was needful. It was better for mankind to have the Holy Spirit living in them walking with them, residing with them, abiding with them than it was to have Jesus in the flesh walking with them. 
And so Jesus fulfills the prophecy of the Old Testament here, and he brings deliverance eternally. These words of Isaiah are then resurrected here in, in Matthew, and, and they're reminded of, we're reminded of them again in Luke chapter 2, that the Messiah has come. And so now the dwelling of God with man occurs. Isaiah prophesies of this, of course, that God would become flesh and dwell with mankind. And these are the very words of, of John in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So every gospel is reiterating this fact that something has changed and God is no longer uh, to be thought of as being far away. Instead, God is, is to be thought of and known to be near, nearer than any of us are to one another, with us. With us in every trial, with us in every difficulty. And of course, the work of redemption begins here. Jesus dies we know a brutal death for the sins of mankind and he rose from the dead defeating death and bringing spiritual deliverance, perfectly fulfilling prophecy. And he brought a better deliverance that Ahaz, than Ahaz ever could have experienced. If Ahaz in that moment had asked for a sign, whatever that sign was, remember he could have asked for anything. He could have asked for an earthquake to occur. He could have asked for uh, the stars of heaven to fall down to earth. And, and tear open the sky, and God would have done it. Instead, he asked for nothing. He refused to trust God. But in that moment, if he had asked for a sign, God would have given it, and God would have given immediate deliverance to Israel. For what? For a short time. For a generation or two. For maybe one or two more kings after Ahaz that would have had peace and comfort, and safety, and political refuge. But it wouldn't have brought redemption from the world of sin, and the world of death and destruction. We needed Emmanuel. And what we need to understand as a church is that Jesus is not just Emmanuel, God with us, in past tense. He's not just God with us from our sins and the payment of our sin and salvation and deliverance from eternity. Jesus is Emmanuel now. Jesus is with us today. And so we have this Emmanuel, this presence of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 gives us this understanding of Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The promise of Jesus is his understanding. He understands your situation. I don't know what situation you have. I, I don't know how you feel, but honestly, I'm kind of tired of this world. Can I just state that? Ever since 2020, right? I'm just being honest. Driving is ridiculous. Everyone is selfish and cutting each other off. People are rude. There's hatred all around. And I, I, our society just plummeted off of a cliff, it seems like. I mean, it wasn't going great before that. 
But it's like all of a sudden the floodgates open and everyone has become more selfish and more hurried and more, uh, more self-desirous uh, in the things that they're seeking. And the world is difficult. And yet we have this promise from Christ that he understands our situation. He endured far worse than you and then me. As a man, he understood all about human emotions and needs and temptations. He was abandoned. He was mistreated. He was hated. He was abused. He was truly rejected. And as bad as it seems to have been the last few years, It's a pathetic comparison to as bad as Christ, the Messiah, Yeshua, had it. He understands far better than us the pain and the difficulty and the turmoil that we face. And he's with us. It's not a cheap saying. This is a title but it's not a cheap saying. You know, you ever have times in life where uh, maybe somebody you love is going through something difficult and you might say something like, I'm with you. I'm praying for you. I'm with you. Or, or come on, you got this. You, you can do it. And it's, it's a rather, at times, it can seem like a rather empty saying. To say simply, you've got this. Come on, go, go for it. You got this. We try to encourage people. I'm not saying that's bad. Right? We can try to encourage people and get them to rally on, but it doesn't mean a whole lot. Back when Titus was eight, he had to take over the chores at home. And it gets dark at like, what, 3.30 it seems like right now, right? 4.30, 5 o'clock it gets dark. And he's got to go out to the barn. He's got to take care of the animals. When he was eight, He'd say, hey, Dad, would you come with me? Why? I was about to say he was afraid of the dark. He says, I wasn't afraid of the dark, Dad. I was afraid of what was in the dark. <laughs> it's a good distinction. It's a good distinction. And if I, there were, there were times, all right, you're all going to love Titus and hate me a little bit here. But there were times I said, you just need to suck it up and deal with it, son. I'm tired. I'm not going out there. Go do it. And he'd go out and do it. Thankfully, he's 10 now, and now what's out in the darkness is afraid of him. He has no qualms about going out at night and taking care of the animals. What he really wanted was for me to get off of my backside and walk out there and be with him. There's no fear then, right? Because I was scarier than what was out in the darkness. That's how it is with us in life. There's times in our life where we don't know what's out in the darkness. We're afraid of it. We're afraid of the unknown. The uncertainties that are coming. We don't know what to do. And we look around at times for help from other people. But we know in actuality they're just going to be cheering us on saying, you got this, you got this. When what we need is someone who is with us. And that is Emmanuel. 
We need to remember this truth. He will not abandon us. The promise of Emmanuel is his helping. It's his saving presence with sinful people. As God, he can meet every one of these needs. So he stands there, or he speaks through Isaiah in Isaiah 7, and he says to Ahaz, ask me anything you want. In all of the height, in all of the depth, I can do it and prove to you that I am with you. And Ahaz said, no, I got this. I got a friend down in Egypt. He can probably help me. And we do the same thing. We're tempted to do the same thing to use human reason, to use our connections, to use our money, to use our time, to use our efforts, to use our experience to get beyond the hardship that we're in. When God is there, and he wants to be with us. Emmanuel is ready to provide mercy for our shortcomings. Jesus, Emmanuel, is ready to provide grace to extend our faith to extend our love, to extend our holiness, to extend our joy. In short, Jesus, our Emmanuel, wants us to have victory and is prepared to make us successful. That's what he was doing in Isaiah 7 when he, sta- when, when he presents himself to Ahaz. He's presenting him there to be his deliverer, to be the one who brings him safety, to be the one that gives him success. And Ahaz turned away. He doesn't send us on with a word of encouragement. He is with us. We're not alone. We're not going through any situation that is too big or unusual for God. Other people will leave you. They'll forsake you. They'll get busy. They'll forget. They'll fail to come through at your time of need. But God will not. He is not a distant Lord who will rescue you only if you truly need it or say the right words. He is a Savior who walks beside you and is intimately involved. And so whatever you face this week, pause and remember that God is with you in every ache, every pain, every frustration. We need to recognize and seek Emmanuel. In fact, through the rest of the New Testament, this promise is reiterated in different ways to us. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, we're told that Christ dwells with us. Scripture reads, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And He who abides in love abides in God, and God in Him. Trust. Trust in Christ makes us genuine in our love. You know, God's character should progressively be uh, altering your character. So as John says, so that our character reflects God, as, as, as he says, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. 
of Jesus, Emmanuel is with us and his love should therefore dominate our life. Can I ask you, we live in a world where self-love dominates. We live in a country. Let me refine that even more. We live in a country where self-love dominates life. If you disagree with that, please, as soon as the service is over, just spend three minutes on social media and you will see that self-love dominates people's life. Even Christians' life. And yet we're given this truth from Emmanuel that his love should dominate our life. It's also evidenced for us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. It says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here it is. It's among the Gentiles as well, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so Jesus Christ dwells with us to prove what is the hope of glory, the glory of the Savior, the glory of the only begotten Son, this mystery that's been surrounding the Messiah from the time of Isaiah where he first gives this prophecy and Ahaz scratches his head and ignores God and he gives him more in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 and he gives him more in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50 and 51 and 53 and 54 and 55 that we just studied and we read over and over again that Christ is Emmanuel and the world ignores it. The world doesn't understand. It is a mystery, and they don't want to take the time to even figure out who God is. And so God comes to them. And he makes it explicitly clear. All through the Old Testament, there's prophecy after prophecy explaining who he is and what he will do. Genesis chapter 3, immediately after the fall, before all the punishments are even dished out, God gives the proto-evangelium, the first promise of the gospel. And he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 12.3, there's the promise of spiritual blessing to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a reference to the Messiah. Or Psalm 49, verse 15. I, I mentioned last week's in Signs and Wonders that uh, uh, Genesis chapter 5 gives us this really important genealogy that says over and over again, and he died. And we have yet this promise from Psalm 49, verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me, Selah. Or the promise we read to start the service, or the middle of the service of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, eternal peace comes through the line of Christ 
where we're told in, in Isaiah 9, 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Christ redeems mankind forever. And of course, Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we look at every one of those prophecies from Genesis all the way up through the one in Isaiah 53, and we know with clarity who it's speaking of. It's speaking of the Messiah. But flip that around and think if you were living in that time, what a mystery that would be. That Christ would save the world Sending a baby to be born of a virgin to suffer and die for mankind. That is a mystery. And yet through these veiled promises, these mysterious statements, God has proven within us that Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is Emmanuel. He dwells within us. His truth dwells within us. His love dwells within us. And God wants us to prove to the Gentiles the hope of the glory that's spoken of in Colossians 1. The assurance of salvation that's proclaimed to all. We know there's no salvation in any other name except the name of Jesus. So who are you sharing that with? Listen, our world has really not much of a problem loving baby Jesus. I mean, it's not hard to love a baby. It's not hard to love a baby who was born in a manger many years ago. What the world has a problem loving and appreciating is that that baby was later hung on a cross for them and their sins. And so I urge you, as Christmas comes tomorrow, not to be afraid to speak of the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. That's what Christmas means. And so grace declares that God can be with us. The law declares that God is against us because we break his law and we make him our enemy. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the baby that the world hates. If he just stays in a manger and he's cute and cuddly, fine. But if that baby then declares that I'm guilty before him, that's when people reject Christ. And yet grace declares that God can be with us. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. 
I'll close with these words. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you a good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We love this description, this descriptive title, Emmanuel, because it brings great comfort to know that the baby Jesus provided God's presence on earth. It means the fulfillment of all these prophecies of salvation. But don't forget that Emmanuel also means the ongoing presence of God with you today and tomorrow. So tomorrow as you open up your presence and you take joy in material things and you enjoy the pleasures of your family and the company of loved ones, remember, God is there too. Let us give him the glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your ongoing presence. We thank you for the massive value of this prophecy and what it meant, how it was ignored for centuries, honestly, how people didn't think about it, didn't care about it. And when you came, they did not equate you with the promise of Isaiah 7, 14, and 9, 6, and 7, and 53, 3. Instead, they rejected you and hated you and despised you. Lord, I pray you'd help us in moments of darkness when we feel alone. We feel as if nobody cares. We're uncertain about what to do. Fear begins to dominate our hearts. Anxiety begins to well up. We think of all the things that could have been. Lord, that we would remember you are with us. And that, Lord, we would honor and glorify you with our heart's response. Lord, help us to love people, to proclaim your love, that they may know you are the Savior, Yeshua our Emmanuel. We thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.